and welcome to Mrs Techie's Technology Classroom for this week. Um, this episode is all about computational thinking, what it is, what all of those crazy scary words mean and what it looks like in a technology classroom. And then I'm going to be stepping you through a resource that's available for free for teachers online right now and all through the year um, that might be able to help you build some of these skills in your students and help you to explain the importance of um, computational thinking to parents and other teachers around you. Because we all know those people who come into our room and say, ah, digital technologies, why are you teaching this? Students spend enough time on computers and screens at home we should be teaching them more useful skills. And I'm here to tell you today that computational thinking is absolutely a skill for life. It's a really important set of skills actually that are going to help students um, look at things in a logical, rational way um, and organize their thoughts so that they can tackle problems in a step-by-step -step way. So computational thinking is a set of problem solving methods and it involves expressing problems and their solutions in a way that a computer would sort of not so much understand but in the way a computer would work towards solving it. So we're looking at coming up with a solution that could easily be um, transferred to someone else, a set of instructions that would tell somebody how to solve this problem or in fact for the student how to solve it themselves or how to replicate their solution in the future. So there are four main stages for computational thinking. The first one is decomposition, the second is pattern recognition, the third is generalization and abstraction, and the last one is algorithm design. So we're really looking at giving students a logical way to analyze a problem and come up with a solution and really work on their organizational skills there. And we all know that these are sadly lacking in lots of students that we're dealing with in a classroom. Um, being autonomous and being able to uh, work on their own is something that all of them probably need some work on um, and they all need more opportunities to practice that and have some success there. So I'm going to talk through each of those four stages in a little bit more detail um, and we're looking at telling kids that computational thinking is thinking like a computer scientist to really understand the problem. So I'll give you an example of something that I've done in the past. Um, I had a makerspace a couple of years ago and we went through a few different terms looking at different ideas each term. Um, my makerspace was set up into three areas. One area where I would be doing some sort of demonstration or whether kids could participate in an activity that I would lead and they could learn something about technology in that way. There was another station that was sort of a free-for-all, just a trolley with tape and scissors and glue and boxes and whatever, have at it. And then there'd be another area as well where I'd set up an activity that kids could just work through if they wanted to. And it was often something like, you know, clip circuits or marble run or, um, you know, something that would encourage them to negotiate and work together and do a bit of problem solving on their own. So those three main areas allowed me to have that bit of time to work with a smaller group because I often had 50 kids in my makerspace at a time and so you know having maybe 18 or 19 whoever wanted to turn up was welcome um, that I could run an activity with them that they could learn something from. So this particular term we were looking at flying machines so we were looking at different sorts of aircraft and how they moved and so I had gone around and collected all sorts of different broken toys from around my house because, you know, plenty of aircraft around here and taken them in and got the kids to 
examine those and then in my little maker group within the makerspace we actually built a number of different models so the the end of the term was going to be a big fly well there was a big fly off where students had to design their own flying um, machine or aircraft and they there would be a little trophy for the student who could send that flying device the furthest along our school hall and you know to my surprise some of them did go you know 30 or 40 meters which was pretty impressive I thought um, there were some parameters there um, that they needed to make a, um, their particular model it had to include some paper I wanted to make sure that we leveled the playing field and that kids felt that everyone had an equal chance so there had to be paper included although you know if this group had been a bit more confident I probably would have lifted that restriction and said it could be made of anything because I really feel like saying it needed to be made partially from paper really sort of guided the kids into making a lot of paper planes and that wasn't my intention I really wanted them to explore some different materials um, but this this was basically uh, what we were working towards that kids would explore aircraft and then build something of their own so thinking about those four stages the first one decomposition which means breaking down a complex problem into smaller more manageable parts so if they're thinking about this aircraft having to go further than anyone else, that's a great big problem. And we could split it down straight away. That first off, they needed to make an aircraft. Second, it needed to be able to fly further than anyone else's. If we're thinking about an aircraft, did it have to look like an aeroplane? What, you know, what were the rules there? Because they could break it down and say, look, it could look like anything. It had to be made of paper partially, had to be able to fly and um, that was basically it so thinking about those three different areas of the problem really allowed them to to tackle one part at a time first off make the model and then worry about how far it, it could go and how to improve on that model um, so the second one was pattern recognition so um, pattern recognition is looking for similarities among and within problems so we're looking at the similarities um, we built several different types of models of flying machines. We looked at the sort of wingnut seeds that come off trees and how um, they spin as they fall to the ground and, and how that affected their movement. They, they dropped very quickly and, oh, not so quickly, sorry, they dropped slower and in a very direct route. So we, we experimented with making cardboard and paper versions of that and looking at how different materials could affect the movement, motion, speed and all of those sorts of things. Um, we looked at making planes out of pegs and paddle pop sticks one week with a little propeller that we could wind up um, and thought about, you know, was this a good design? How could we make it work with what we were doing and all of those sorts of things? Um, and we looked at paper aeroplanes, of course, and some other models as well using straws and bits of cardboard and tape and things like that. So we looked at then the similarities amongst those models and talked about what features would be best to incorporate into our end design so um, looking at similarities and thinking about you know which materials worked better which ones didn't looking for some patterns in that data so that we could choose then the resources that we needed the materials that we we're going to make our models from to ensure our best chances of success the next part was abstraction that's focusing on the important information so abstraction is from um, the uh, it's a Latin word actually and it's 
uh, ab broken into two parts. So abs means away from and trahere is to draw. So drawing out the really important parts of this problem that we had. So, you know, there were a lot of kids that wanted to make their airplane look beautiful. I'd seen these biplanes and they wanted to have two propellers and all of these sorts of things. But we encouraged them to break this problem down into very simple terms. What was it we were really looking at? What was the really important thing? Did it matter what it looked like? If we're looking at pictures of aircraft, you know, um, that that needed to have that mass appeal, you know, you're wanting to encourage people to board these aircraft, what did they need, you know? And what did our model need? Did it need all of those things or which were the important parts? For example, you know, if you're making a paper aeroplane, you don't put a ladder on, on it to, for little paper people to walk up, you know, focusing on what we needed. And I'm not joking about that. Some kids really felt like these models needed to be exact to um, their experience out of boarding aircraft in the past or, or their favourite toy at home. So really thinking about abstraction bringing it down to what's important there and focusing on that and using that as a basis for then planning our, our model aircraft. And so the last part, which is algorithm design, is students coming up with a step-by-step -step solution, what they were going to do, how they were going to do it, what materials and step-by-step. -step. First, I'm going to do this, then this, then this. Um, and also um, just working through um um, how they could explain it to someone else. So obviously when students set up a set of instructions at the beginning of a project, these are the steps I'm going to do. They don't always follow them because, you know, things happen and plans change. Um, and I think it's really important that we give them time at the end of a project to go back and modify those set of instructions. So if they wanted to repeat this particular experiment later on or if they wanted to give the instructions to a friend, how could you improve on your instructions or your algorithm to make sure that the next person doing this would have a good chance of success or how could you improve on it and what would you do differently next time. So just to go back through those four areas because I know I did that in a real rush, um, decomposition. So that's breaking down a complex problem into smaller parts so that you can deal with them one at a time. Pattern recognition, looking for similarities among and within problems. Um, looking um, for similarities helps us to make predictions about what will happen next. And if we can predict what will happen next, it will help us form part of the solution. So pattern recognition is really, really important. And as human beings, we're doing that all the time without even thinking. Um, abstraction is breaking things down and then just taking the really important parts and really tailoring our solution to target those particular parts. So abstraction is really important. Getting rid of all of the unnecessary, unwanted information and just dealing with what we really need to deal with and focusing our energy and time there. And then algorithm design is that step-by-step -step solution or sometimes it can be the set of rules that you need to apply to a situation to solve it. So algorithm design doesn't always have to be, you know, a set of instructions like a recipe. It can be about the rules that you need to apply. So that's a little bit of an example where in technologies, um, and in this case we sort of did some design, you could apply these rules. And of course these rules, these four rules in computational thinking could be applied to a whole range of areas in your classroom. You know, if you're doing digital tech, you might be looking at making a computer game or um, making a little commercial using some animation in Scratch or um, iMovie on an iPad. 
it could be um, looking at a project that you're doing in science or math or wherever or it could be an art installation that you're creating you know thinking about breaking down the problem what do we need to make this successful what patterns can we see in other art installations around world but breaking it down into the important parts getting rid of anything unnecessary and then you know designing your, what you're going to actually um, produce as an artist so you know these skills are really important for a variety of, of uh, different things in our classroom and then later on into life um, and that's why I think it's really important um, because you know computational thinking is really just innovative thinking it's going out on a limb and trying something different um, it's looking at a problem and solving it um, even if other people haven't identified it as a problem yet and so this computational thinking can really force kids to think outside of the box and and I think that's really important we're seeing less kids who allow themselves the privilege of doing that they're so keen to be successful and be right they just want to follow the models of others and we really need to you know respect that in some ways that you know sometimes that is the right way to go about things but we also want them to be a little bit um, more risk-taking. We want them to be able to um, be prepared and willing to try new ways of thinking and new ways of doing so that they can solve some of these bigger issues. You know, I'm not getting any younger and I know people's knees often give out and I, I don't fancy being one of those hobbly old women. I'm really hopeful that um, somebody in in Australia or the world out there as a kid is dreaming of, of uh, innovative ways to assist older people with their bad knees and other joints uh, because that is a real fear of mine <laughs> so we really want kids to be thinking in in new ways and and prepared to solve problems that don't affect them um, computational thinking as a term was coined in the 80s and lots of people have used it and basically the general consensus is that it's really important because it turns people, computational thinking turns people from consumers of things into creators of things. You know, instead of just going out and buying something that will solve your problem, it actually turns you into someone that can creatively tackle the issues around you. And for me, I think, you know, I, I live in a household where a lot of people I live with are gamers. <laughs> um, you know, they're teenagers, so I try and limit the amount of time they use in gaming and they look very passive while they're playing. And once they started building their own games or building their own modifications to games, they became more active in the participants participants in the experience you know they they're talking to each other about oh if we could fix this or change this it would be better and so you know we want our students to be more active participants in their own, own worlds including their online worlds and I think with computational thinking if we tackle it in the right way we can actually get those brains switched on and, and working while they're at play and we all know that um, that's that's the best way to educate people is to do it uh, subtly when they don't notice we're doing that. Um, so uh, some strategies for people who would like to explore this more in their classroom. So the reason I'm doing this particular episode this week is because um, the Beebra's Computational Thinking Challenge is about to start in Australia. So the Beebra's Challenge runs all over the world. Um, in Australia it's hosted and run by um, Digital Careers Australia which is an offshoot of CSIRO hope I got that right um, and so they have um, put the website up and it's ready to be run um, 
in classrooms all over Australia. And because it is CSIRO, I feel quite comfortable knowing that um, it's going to work, that the data is going to be used for good purposes, that we can trust what's happening there is of good quality. And certainly my experience over the last several years that I've been using it has been that um, this is a really engaging, exciting project and um, it is a high quality set of activities for students that is low fuss and low maintenance for teachers. So what do you need to get started? Basically as a teacher, you're going to need to go to the Beebra's website and you're going to need to get a teacher registration. And then you can go into the teacher section and you can find an area to download forms that you'll need to send home. So um, these forms outline the terms and agreement for parents to sign off to say their students can participate in this challenge. Um, and so that's, to me, I just feel very comfortable knowing that that's uh, a form that's been vetted. I can give it to my principal and say, look, this is from CSIRO and we can know that it's going to be covering our bases. Um, on that form, students, um, uh, parents, sorry, put down the student name and some other information about the student. It's not a lot of information and there's an option actually for um, parents to put down a pseudonym for students to use while they're online. And so that form never actually goes anywhere but to the coordinator in the school. I tend to add the information um, as necessary onto the website and then shred the paper. So on the particular website, you might just have a whole bunch of pseudonyms and you as a teacher will know who Cody McCodeface or, you know, whoever um, has registered, you'll know which student is which there. Um, but that information goes no further than you. So you can really assure parents who might be concerned about um, privacy and, and online security that um, this is a really safe um, environment for their students to be participating in. Um, the challenge is set up into um, blocks. So for primary school, there's a 3-4 challenge, year 3-4, and there's a 5-6, year 5-6 challenge, and there are several um, challenges for high school students as well. Um, so you just register your students into the correct little challenge. Um, and then they give you a two-week period in which to run that challenge. So for me as a digital technology teacher, I can just run that challenge in my general weekly lessons. It takes about an hour for your last kid to finish, but often I find that within about 40 minutes, my students are saying we're finished. So that's quite a manageable amount of time for you to fit into your um, computer time in, in a general week. Um, and because it doesn't all have to be done on the same day at the same time, it means that your computer lab can be utilised by a number of different classes. And I can spread that out. And if a student's away, I can catch them up later on in the week. So it's a two-week period that you can do it. It runs in March and then six months later again, usually in September. Um, and it's the same test both times, which sounds strange, but it's actually quite good because you can have kids run um, the test in March and it will give you all the information on uh, which strategies they are very strong in using in terms of computational thinking and which areas they need to work in. Um, and then they can repeat the test in September and you can really track um, the student learning and really reflect on the teaching that you're doing as well to see if what you're doing is working and you can change that um, way of um, you know, educating um, so that you can perhaps have more success in the future because we know that the teaching is about the learners but it's about the teachers as well. So I find it a really useful reflective tool. 
Um, at the end of the test period, she gets sent back very quickly within a fortnight. Often it's within a few days, the results of the test. Um, and it will tell you exactly which questions students got right or wrong. Um, and it will give students a mark as well. So, you know, a participation, a, a merit or a credit or a distinction. And so that's really exciting for students to have a certificate saying, you know, that they participated. And for a lot of kids, well, in my experience anyway, for a lot of kids getting that sort of merit or credit or distinction, um, for those students, sometimes that's the only time they'll be acknowledged in a, a way um, to, sh to say that they have, um, you know, some skills in a particular area. They're often, you know, not your sporty kids or not your poetry kids or your drama kids. They're sort of a different set of kids. Sometimes those kids overlap as we all know but um, often you're finding that you're, you're really happy to give out these certificates of credit or merit or distinction because these kids usually aren't the sort that stand up on parade and receive something. Um, so it's really rewarding all round. Um, the actual interface there, um, there are lots of different um, puzzles for the students to solve. They're really colourful, they're cartoon-like and they rely on drag and drop and it um, can be done individually or in pairs. I find that it, you know, thinking about NAPLAN online in the future, this is a really good way to get kids comfortable sitting in front of a computer and having a time limit with which they need to, to solve some problems and, and it's in a fun sort of dynamic way with cute little cartoon animals. Um, so it would go away to making students more comfortable with that idea of an online test. And this is fairly low stakes, you know, it's something that's sort of school-based although if you have students who do very well there are chances to be recognized nationally um, that hasn't happened for me yet maybe this year um, so you know it's it's quite a lovely experience to go through and students are always saying oh, when's it coming up again can we do it can, can we get on there and the beautiful thing is that the Beavers website has a, a portion called Beavers 365 which is past challenges that are open for teachers to use in their classroom you can run a couple of questions on your interactive whiteboard um, you know that might link in with some maths that you're learning or you can set them for homework if you want to. I know a lot of parents have often been interested and I've had uh, dads wanting to have a go at doing it themselves and see where they um, came out in terms of computational thinking competence. So, you know, it's a, a good little resource for you to use in an, all manner of ways, um, group work and those sorts of things. I said before that students can work in the challenge individually or in pairs and you might think, well, that's a bit strange. Um, but we all know if you've been teaching coding that sometimes it's that conversation that happens between students that is a really valuable thing rather than the product. And, you know, we're, we're doing this test for our own benefit, so you can run it how you like. But I think it is wonderful to be walking around a classroom and listening to kids talking about how to solve a problem in front of them. Sometimes that negotiation amongst classmates is something you're really wanting to explicitly teach. And so having those opportunities to um, to see how they're going with that is, is good. And also walking around, you can listen to the conversation and think of, uh, reflect on your teaching and think about where you want to go to next with this, the concepts you're teaching in your room. So I think that's probably a, a, a benefit that students can work together. So just one more little bit of information so that you can find it. It's called Bebras, B-E-B-R-A-S. And if you have a look on Google and just pop Bebras in, it'll come up. But you want to find the Australia site. And I will give you the website as soon as I can get this phone unlocked. 
Um, and so it is HTTPS, so a secure uh, place on the internet, www.bbres.edu.au. Um, and you can have a look around that site. It will not cost you a cent. Um, like I said, it's a little strange. Those beavers, the word is, I think, Lithuanian for beaver. So it's a bit of an unusual um, character, mascot to have for a computational thinking challenge. But um, nevertheless, there it is, awfully cute. And um, it just is a really wonderful way to introduce your students to um, not only computational thinking, but some ICT skills as well, because a lot of the questions require students to drag and drop to find a solution. Um, and so you're, you're building some capability with ICTs there. So just to recap, today in our little whirlwind tour of computational thinking, um, we've been talking about what it is. We've talked about why it's important for students to become lifelong problem solvers. Um, and we've talked about the four stages, decomposition, pattern recognition, generalization and abstraction. And the last one is algorithm design. And then I've talked to, talked to you a little bit about um, the Bieber's Challenge, um, which I hope lots of you will jump in and have a go at because it really is a bit of fun. Um, and, you know, I think it's a great way to get kids excited about some um, some computational thinking. Um, STEM teachers out there don't feel that you need to be a digital tech teacher to get right in there. There's obviously lots and lots of science and tech and engineering and maths inside this computational thinking field and the Bieber's Challenge is going to tick some boxes for you there as well. Um, great way for you to track some student um, achievement and to reflect on your own teaching practice. So give it a go. You've got probably a week to get all your ducks in a row and um, get those forms home and signed and, and get kids into the challenge. And if you miss out this time, don't worry, you can hop in on in hop on in in September and give it a go then. It's open every year for those two periods of time. Um, send me a message on the Facebook page if you want any more information or check out Digital Careers Australia on Facebook. They have lots of information about it as well. And um, yeah, thank you so much for listening. I've been really encouraged this week looking at the, the numbers of people listening in. Thank you so much for indulging me with this little crazy project. It's been a while since I've had a crazy project. So thank you very much for, for listening in. Hope it's been helpful. Um, you can find me on um, Mrs Techie's Technology Classroom on Facebook. I'll pop some links up there to Beavers if you like them and probably a couple of links as well just to send you um, to some other information about computational thinking if you'd like to have more of a, a read and a think about what that means for you in your room. All right, I'll look forward to talking to you next week. Thanks very much for listening. See you later.